author's note. I said in part one that it was my friends who said, don't try to make this one perfect episode. Tell your story. Say what your body needs to say. After a year of mentally planning and doing different drafts of this episode, this was only on Thursday when the first part had to be recorded the following Wednesday. This is my third Tuesday in a row recording, which means after I don't have time to sit with it, overanalyze, re-record before it goes live on Wednesday. And today I'm feeling itchy about that. Because this episode I just recorded that you're about to hear is raw. It's my girlfriend therapy session. It's the way I only talk to my close friends. There is a lot of cursing and a lot of raised voices. And we don't always like that in women. We like vulnerable authenticity. We say we want real, but we want it to be elegant and refined, already smoothed out and feeling a little safer. But when we don't allow our righteous anger, we trap it. We won't let it out, so we keep it inside of us, which means we keep living with it. So friend, may today be an example of how to purge your pain. In the first part, I said I was sad and scared. I let you empathize with me. In the second part, I made calm, logical, well-laid-out points. I earned your trust that I acted in this process as the organized, respectable professional that I absolutely did. And on that foundation, in this third part, I let you into the hospital room, the bedroom, the car, the place where you let loose and scream and shake your fists at the heavens. And then you smooth your skirt and smooth down your hair and enter back into the world with your body feeling lighter because it's told and felt your truth. So today, welcome inside my home. Put on your cozy pants and pour a glass because I am exhausted at the end of a long journey. And today I can only hang out with people with whom I can completely be myself. You can do the same in return. I'm glad you're here. You're welcome. What was that? You're welcome. With Hillary Rushford. Say it again. You're welcome. In advance. Hi, beautiful friend. This is part three of a hard, hard story. And if you are landing on this episode first, I would sincerely encourage you to please go listen to the first two parts in order. Part one will explain why it's so tender to share something so traumatic and it makes me feel a lot safer knowing you've heard that part. And part two explains some of the trust I put in the players, why there was so much at risk financially, and importantly, why I'm sharing this in the first place so my intentions are not misunderstood, which is also a huge part of feeling safe enough to share something. And I'll say up front, I think next week's episode of the podcast is going to be entitled, Where Do We Go From Here? And I say we because I have been blown away. I truly did not know how many of you would feel deeply, deeply seen in a way you almost never have because you've been through experiences that felt similar to you in your corporate job, the music industry, working for a church at a university, and you've almost never heard someone talk about them. I have never heard 
you talk about them. Usually, if there's something that a lot of people in this collective have gone through, I know it because I am so incredibly blessed to get to hear from you in DMs and comments and in private groups. So for me to be so blown away that I did not realize something was so common is kind of alarming and arresting to me. And I want to say, if you have left a comment during this series because this has resonated with you or reminds you of a best friend of yours or what your sister went through, please share this episode. I know that a lot of you have been waiting until part three and you've said, once part three comes out, I'm going to share this with my email list. I'm going to share this in a group I'm a part of. I'm going to share this on social media. But please know from the response that it's not about sharing Hillary's story. It's about inviting someone in to hear someone talk about something they went through that more people in your life, your community, your neighborhood, your mom group, whatever it is, can relate to than you realize and are so hungry to realize that they were not alone and they didn't do anything wrong and they have been blaming and shaming themselves And in hearing me share it, things that, again, are completely unrelated that I just had no idea would resonate. I thought I was sharing the story predominantly for myself to heal and secondarily for those who are fellow authors or aspiring, which is a pretty niche demographic of this audience. And then, yes, the core audience here because I I, I needed to fill you in for us to move forward. But the idea that it would speak so much to you and your story I had no idea. And if that is so true for this community, then it has to be true for a hundred other people in your life. And I hope that this is a gift and a blessing to them. So next week, I have some thoughts for us collectively as how we move forward. But first, we need to finish this story. And as with each week, it feels imperfect. I wish I had another week to work on it. And yet I am so grateful for the deadline that I have to publish because the last two weeks I felt exactly the same. And then once it was live, I was so grateful that it was just out there and it was fine and I wasn't overanalyzing. Oh my gosh, I wish I'd done this and I wish I had said this. And I want to say that because I feel like someone else needs to hear it. That adage of done is better than perfect. It really is. And I know, especially when something is so tender, it feels like you do not want to get it wrong. You don't want it to be misinterpreted. All of the things. And so many of you have resonated with what I've been sharing over on Instagram about being so afraid to speak. But genuinely, it's only been six days since the last episode went live that I'm recording this when I actually talked, when I actually said the word book. And I have felt so much lighter and freer and safer than I would have expected. And it happened within days. It was such a swift change in my body. And if you have something that you are terrified to share and start speaking about, I cannot guarantee it will be the same for you. I just want you to know what it has been for me, which is a, it is re-traumatizing to have to tell the story. Yes. But what that means is you are doing a little bit of hard work up front so that you can heal in the long term has been my experience. And you can justify to yourself, but it's going to be re-traumatizing to have to talk about it. That is true. But if you look ahead one month, one year from now, 
is it going to lead you more down the path of healing? In my experience, absolutely yes. And the fear up front, which I only faced because I felt like I had to do it to save my business, and there's a good chance that in your life, you don't have that kind of reason. It's you're, You only are sharing it to heal, and I want to at least share from my perspective that the healing has been terrifying and traumatic, and also I am so instantly feeling the healing. Now, I also did it intentionally. I thought about it for the last year. I I talked through it, et cetera. I didn't just blurt it all out. I wasn't, you know, um, doing it without any preparation. So you might want to think through how you do it and give yourself that space. But if you can have some sort of a deadline and a reason and accountability to just start telling your truth, I can just say, already, we haven't even finished the series, I, I am feeling more healed in this area. And I would not have believed that that was going to happen in a week turnaround. So, all right, we left off in January of 22. And I feel like, by the way, I I will probably end up cursing in this episode. I don't know. So just FYI, if you have littles around, this might be a earbud episode. So again, there are way more details to the story than I can cover. So I am choosing the key ones that I feel give you enough of a sense to understand. So for the most part, after consulting a lawyer, a second lawyer in this process, I realized this is a podcast, not a trial. So I do not have to so deeply re-traumatize myself that I painstakingly recreate every timeline and conversation and make sure that I reread every email correspondence. The way I remember it is enough because the way I remember it is the impact it had on my body. And I am not trying to take someone to trial. I'm not trying to sue someone. I am trying to heal. And what matters, therefore, is that I tell what felt like the truth to me. Now, that does not mean that it is not actually the truth. But again, I just want you to hear me say that what I have learned for myself is that what I wanted to do was go back and corroborate every single point with a paper trail because I was so used to being gaslit that I want to show how incredibly organized I am that I have all of my ducks in a row. And I just realized, why am I doing that? Who am I trying to be enough for? Me telling you what happened to me is enough for you. You will believe me because I have given you absolutely every reason to. It is different people who who made me feel like I wasn't trusted and they I am not arguing my case to them that they they are not present here for me as I am speaking. I'm speaking to you. There are Two exceptions, though, in which I want to read verbatim what was sent to me. And the first was the very first feedback I got on my book from my editor. So here's what's important to know. When you sell a book, you put together a book proposal. It's a 75-page document. And one of the things you include are about four comp books, other books that are in the general vein of what you're doing, or maybe it's a combination. It's kind of, it's a little bit of this and it's a little bit of this. And ultimately what they're going to do is go back and look at how did those books sell? (laughs) Like, are these books that other people are wanting to buy? And therefore, if we're in the same vein as this, this is going to be a good revenue uh, investment for us. Or if it's a combination of these, this is going to work well. So one of my four comp books was The Body Is Not An Apology. That is by a fat, black, queer activist. So it was reasonable to expect just from looking at that one metric, which they would have been wise to look at, because as it was explained to me, that's where you were getting part of your insight into, do I believe that this is a profitable revenue stream to invest in? 
it would be reasonable to expect or argue that approximately 25% of my book would have that energy of a fat, black, queer activist writing a book called The Body Is Not an Apology, which is a beautiful book. And I said things along the lines of, in unpacking why we have the belief in the first place that smaller bodies are better, because it's just a belief, we're gonna talk about the racist and classist origins of fat phobia, where that really comes from as detailed in Fearing the Black Body by Dr. Sabrina Striggs, a really deep intellectual tomb um, that was incredibly well-researched and compelling. In grappling with how we can feel beautiful without harming others, We'll discuss the toxic load in our beauty products, which leads to fertility issues, meaning our beauty aspirations harm fellow aspiring mothers, and why women of color use far more products than white women to assimilate to white to Western beauty standards, meaning mothers and children of color are impacted most of all. Like those are just two examples of the types of things I knew going in we were going to want to explore and consider. And I know that this was really clear in my book proposal because I met with four imprints and in every other conversation, which was, as I mentioned last week, just the individual editor considering the book, we had really meaningful in-depth conversations about those complex topics. And they were really interested in the surprising level of depth I was bringing to a topic that was so much more than style tips, though it also does include, did and does include those joyful elements. So as I said in the last episode, they had so many people on the call, they chose not to talk in depth about the work like the other publishers, Then I spoke to my editor once in six months, working only with the private editor of their choice, whose salary I too was paying. And after finally reading my book, after I wrote it for six months and they had seen nothing but the book proposal six months earlier, my editor replied, and I am reading, quote, I enjoyed the places that you address social justice issues as it relates to the content. However, the reader will not be expecting to read about social justice in a self-help and style-centered book. That would have to be a second book, which would be clearly defined as a social justice book, and would be a smaller audience. There would be some crossover, but as we position this book for the sales team, we will do it in a way that draws the largest audience to maximize sales potential. That said, I have cut some of the social justice content when it was too heavy. Again, there can be a small amount when appropriate, but keep the tone as light as possible because that is what the reader is expecting, end quote. I have four points in reply, which is hitting me right in this very moment that I never actually said any of this to them because crazy as it sounds in hindsight, we kind of punted this issue down the road and decided we would just talk about it a little later and then it never ended up arising again. But here is how I felt at the time and still feel today. Number one, how do you, dear reader, know what to expect in a book? You read the title, subtitle, look at the cover, read the back cover, the reviews, the table of contents, the introduction chapter. It is the most pathetic, lazy reason to adjust the content rather than just do your job to help the reader understand what the content actually is. Do we say to Glennon Doyle, just take out the lesbian parts of the memoir as that's not what the reader will be expecting because the last time you wrote a book, you were married to a man. 
No, we make sure any homophobic readers who are going to get their panties in a bunch because they bought this book and are like, oh my gosh, I cannot believe this talks about LGBTQ themes. Or in my case, oh my goodness, she talks about racism. I would not have spent this money if I had known as a slightly racist white woman that I was going to be forced to think about people of other races in what makes me feel beautiful. No, instead, with Glennon, we just give it a rainbow sparkle cover and the title Untamed and a bio that says she lives with her wife. So if you, dear reader, didn't get the memo and you are bummed because you want to be able to stay in your closed-minded bubble once you get inside, then that's on you. We don't tell Glennon not to tell her truth because you can't do a little bit of work to figure out if this is the book that you actually want to read. One of the top areas of expertise as a publisher, in my opinion, should be how to package what the book actually is. Not pretend you have no options in packaging. You're just totally out of any creative ideas. There's no option other than to call this 10 style tips to look cute and skinny and then say, well, yes, we got all these negative Amazon reviews because all the slightly racist white women didn't know that we were going to be talking about these themes at all. So instead, we just have to make books that are all one note with no complexity. So incredibly obvious from the start. Number two. The implication is that the reader is neither smart nor complex. Now, I know if you are in publishing, I can hear you shouting back, they aren't. We feel the data says they aren't. I know you think that. I don't. It is just never the way I have operated. From my earliest days as a stylist, I have imagined that my student has her PhD or her master's in something else. She is very bright. She just doesn't know this area the way... I don't know how to cook, but I don't need you to talk down to me like I'm an idiot. I actually need you to explain it to me in a way no one else has so that I will finally get it or be interested in it. If I was interested in a steps one through 10 of 101 cooking, I could have already gotten that out there, but that hasn't spoken to me. So I need to be spoken to with some sort of complexity, some different angle, some more compelling story than what I've seen before if I'm going to be at this point in my life and start to change my experience and my ideas around cooking. I actually need the complexity. And what they were saying is, Hillary, you're doing something new and she's not smart enough to read any of the uh, elements around the book to consider that there might be some meaningful depth to it. You're doing something meaningful and she's so vapid and surfacy that all she's going to want is the style tips, which she has been reading on blogs and in webins magazines her entire life that have done absolutely nothing to heal her in this area. But she's so stupid. She's just going to keep buying more of the same cotton candy and shoving it into her mouth. And if you offer her this beautiful Thanksgiving feast of a meal, that's, that's not what she wants. I just disagree, and I believe that I have proven that in my decade plus in business, because I've taught over a million people in my free teaching, and it has always had depth. It has never talked down to her, and it has always had the complexity of lots of layers and angles. What I always get told is that I say things in a way that people haven't heard it before. They've heard the general theme and idea, but I said it in a way that was different. I made it mean something. I, I helped you understand how all the layers came together. The intersection of all of that 
is what my zone of genius is. It's the thing that I do in the world and therefore was always going to do. Number three, they're saying only a much smaller audience in 2023 cares about racism or fat phobia or infertility or the environment. Okay, then those are the women who will change culture So we will start with them. Now, I understand the publishing argument is, well, but we thought you were also going to be able to sell to the slightly racist white women, and that's why we gave you the money that we gave you, to which I would return again to, you were then bad at your job and you were not paying attention. And furthermore, once you realize this is what it is, now we have to move beyond just business into what is the purpose of our life as human beings and are we here to actually make a difference? If not, what are we doing at our jobs from 8 a.m. to 6 p.m. every day if we're just pushing paper, giving American women the exact same content they've been fed for forever that isn't actually leading to healing? So for even a moment, did it occur to you Maybe this book is actually trying to do something purposeful. And point number four, that this might warrant just one conversation. Hillary, I'd love to hear from you, as you're the one that's been exploring this work since 2011, why you believe these elements are fundamental to the transformation of the reader. So I can help you either see why they are not needed by the reader or not expected, but needed for transformation. So I can help you better make your case in the text and fold it in. Which is literally what I thought the job of an editor was. I'm not being cheeky. That is earnestly what I thought this person was supposed to be an expert at, is understanding the point I am trying to make, deeply believing in it, and helping me to ensure that I communicate it best. Not saying, eh, I don't get it. Quick little email here. Just just take it out. I don't think it's important. But the premise that I would lie, I would withhold the truth and the path to healing from women. I would lightly skim over the deep, meaningful reasons we are even having this conversation in the first place because not enough women are smart enough to really want to undo the indoctrination of the patriarchy, the rich, and white supremacy that is fucking exhausting all of us. We're so dumb as women. We don't actually want to heal, fix, and change the things that are making all of us miserable. We just want to know that we need another pencil skirt and a pair of high-heeled sandals. Like, every time I think of this email, I lose my mind. Why? Why did you fight so hard for me? Why did you outbid the other imprints who actually liked my work? Number one, you were bad at your job. You did not read the proposal. You saw my Instagram follower count and my cute photos, and you didn't even click around to the one video about my book linked in last week's description where I talked about this and mentioned social justice or any of the pin stories on controversial topics to give you a hint that this is a part of my messaging and what is deeply important to me. The private editor they made me hire... She listened to a handful of podcast episodes. I don't know if they were the most recent ones. I don't know if she just went through and plucked them. Couple podcast episodes before having a meeting with me, and she got it. 
she was like, yeah, I really understand the depth of what you're doing here. It's, it's different. It's, it's meaningful. I get it. They didn't do that. Number two, you were lazy at your job and completely disrespectful. You let me write for six months, spend all the time I could financially afford to, to give you full time to write while I lost hundreds and hundreds of thousands of dollars of income and drained my savings account to then pay attention to what the book was. And it wasn't just social justice. They didn't like how much data and facts and history I could include it. And we could have covered that before I spent half my writing time deeply researching because personally, that is what compels me as a reader, not a self-help author merely spouting off their ideas. I give you Martha Beck, who I already mentioned in part one, and I am not comparing myself to because she is a luminous goddess, but her knowledge of facts and data is why I trust her wisdom so implicitly and why I am very suspect of so many others who, like me, big hand raised, have just declared themselves experts on the internet. It was always my plan to research like the daughter of a PhD that I am. So basically, they weren't aligned with my values as an author. And again, if you read through the history and you think the writing is dense, then help me make the writing better. That is literally your job. I'm not arguing with the fact that they may have felt this part is a little heavy, etc. You can shape that. You don't steal it from the reader or cut me off at the legs, not sounding like I've respected the reader enough to actually research and have some humility in this process, nor completely change my values from the person I have always been that has respect for racial equity or data-driven studies because you don't want to put in any work. And as an aside, I know I keep using a version of the phrase, they weren't good at their job or you're bad at your job. And as a writer, I always try not to say the same thing twice. It kind of drives me crazy. But friend, how else do you phrase it? They were untalented? I mean, that's too grand for the basic steps we're talking about here. It's just the job, the core base elements, the foundations of what this business interaction is supposed to be. And I, especially that word, because the implication was always that I was the one not doing a good job. And I did have the confidence in my vision in the work. I had the confidence at the time to say to my private editor when we got this email of feedback instantly, absolutely not. I would walk away from this contract before I would water it down, especially if they are so lacking in curiosity, they won't even dialogue with me about it and are just like, eh, let's not mention race, yeah? When the truth is, so much of our past and present stories are about race and other elements like it because they're about hierarchies. Because by beautiful, we mean more beautiful than someone else so that we have more power, we have more status, we have more confidence because we're above someone else, which plays back into race so hard pass to ignoring all of that if this is a book that is actually going to get to the root of the issue and therefore help us heal. But with that confidence, I still felt defeated, misunderstood, gaslit, things that make you feel like you're not doing a good job because these people who were obsessed with you now just want you to be less like you 
if you want to keep your job. Now again, could we diversify the vernacular? Could we say career? But I could go be an author somewhere else someday as my career. This was a job, as in one I was expecting financial compensation for, in the short and medium term. So thank you for indulging me in my annoyance at the repetition, but when you're talking about the basics, you can't get flowery or you lose the whole point that these were just the basics that weren't being done. I digress. What did this cost them? A few emails. I, 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 at this point, I actually looked back because I got told at one point that um, I was overstepping boundaries because of how often I emailed. I went back, I believe this was in February, I went back and I looked at how many emails I had sent since June. I'd sent the equivalent of one email every six weeks. That was too much for my full-time job and the number one person who was the boss I was supposed to be uh, reporting to. So a few emails, one Zoom, and reading one manuscript is what it cost them. What did it cost me? The ability to buy a home for my husband and I. This is the main issue I am raising the red flag over. All the risk goes to the author. All of the respect goes to the publisher and agents. It is incredibly inappropriate, and as I mentioned last week, for what I believe are clauses inherent in most publishing contracts, no one ever talks about this, and thus I had no idea how to advocate and protect myself. I blindly, humbly, respectfully trusted all of the experienced adults in the room, And I now know not to, unless they earn that trust, which comes through relationship, not a title. So all the themes I shared in last week's episode continue from January into May. There's so much disrespect. I put my biggest launch of the year on the back burner to hit their next deadline. They wanted illustrations at the same time. And I said, I can't do that. Even working full time for you, I can't do full edits and full illustrations in a few weeks. But please at least accept this manuscript so part one can be done. Then I'll do my launch and then the illustrations. At the 11th hour, they said no which means I had lost at least another six figures prioritizing their deadline because they were threatening me if I didn't, which from last week, you'll you'll recall, I only had to scramble and prioritize this deadline because they blew through their deadline without bothering to send one email to let me know. If they had, I could have switched. I could have prepped my launch in December, leaving me time in January, February to do both, but that didn't happen. So now I do my launch, then all the illustrations. The illustrations alone are a full month of my time. I work with this beautiful artist, but I have to choose every single element of every single illustration. The body type, the age, skin tone, hair color, hairstyle, hair type, the outfit, the accessories, the shoes, the pose, the colors, the prints. I'm trying so hard to welcome in diversity of everyone all throughout having I've someone in a wheelchair, I have different body types, I'm trying to welcome in different styles because I don't want you to open this and think I'm trying to get everyone to dress like me. I'm trying to make it visually beautiful so that all of the colors and the prints go together. Um, I have asked them, by the way, for one meeting with an art director sometime in this year to make sure that I'm not doing all of this in vain, I'm not going in the wrong direction, I don't know what I don't know. I am sitting around piles of books. I have a 
a ruler out, I have colored pencils, I have scotch tape. I mean, it was like I was 16 years old again at the local Kinko's at midnight trying to put together a presentation as I try to figure out what do I think the trim size of my book is gonna be, the size, what do I think the length is gonna be? I'm doing math, trying to estimate my word count and Googling other people's word count to guess how many pages I have in a book in order to know that I have enough but not too many illustrations throughout because they will not even grant me a meeting with an art director. And I would like to remind you, I have no idea what the fuck I'm doing and they are professionals. And this is my actual real adult full-time job. Why is no one helping me? I finally submit the illustrations in May. A week later, the editor quits. This happens. Um, This happens a lot more often than I think people talk about. Um, It's called a book getting orphaned and it is not good. Whenever someone has this happen, my agents would say, oh, her book got orphaned. Like, as in, oh, she had a miscarriage. Like, really, it's really, it's not good. We need to, like, have somber tones. It's so hard that this happened to someone. Now, if the editor had communicated their deadline back in November, December, could we have made it past the acceptance stage, which I believed we were mere weeks away from, at which point the book would have gone forward. It would have been accepted and there, I believe, just wouldn't have been a reason why it wouldn't have made it to the finish line. Did a few weeks of them not communicating and therefore not empowering me to adjust my schedule make the difference? I don't know. But now we're on to editor number two in May. And the detail that I said last week from December would prove to be important. The agents telling me in December to lie. This led to a phrase I now know is the worst thing in the world in the publishing industry. Two manuscripts. The agents understood what that meant. And when they said to me something to the effect in that email of what you're doing, by the way, is completely normal continuing to write while they have your manuscript. Agents and authors just don't tell the publisher they're writing, but everyone does it. It's going to be fine. Meanwhile, the private editor also knew that I was writing, and she thought what they were going to come back with after they read the first draft was something I believe called an editorial letter. It's basically bullets that say things like, just take out any mention of racism and keep the style tips and we'll be good to go. But what happened is the editor's assistant accidentally started doing what I believe are called track changes, like the little granular changes of don't use this word, use this one and restructure the sentence this way and add a comma here. So the editor then sees that their assistant is getting more granular, what you would traditionally do in round two, and just decides to go with it, but doesn't tell anyone that this is happening. So the agents aren't expecting it. The private editor isn't expecting it. I have absolutely no idea what anything is happening. And so we end up with two manuscripts. The manuscript that they did all these teeny little changes on and one that I've been doing a whole round of revisions on for two months that is now wildly different. I have a lot more changes in mine than in theirs. So it's too hard to put mine into theirs. So we fold theirs into mine. And the private editor says to them, you will not love this, but you got to trust me. It was the only option. And she knows that they are not going to be happy with this, but she's, you know, saying this, this really was the only option. As far as I know, the agents never say, 
we told her to keep writing. She didn't do anything wrong. We knew, the private editor knew. Let, let's be honest, all, all writers are doing this, right? And your, your assistant was trying to do the right thing. She just made an error. She's not a horrible person, but that just happened. So that's really where the issue is. We, we could have not told her to lie to you. The, the assistant could have not made an error, but you know who didn't do anything wrong here? Hillary. Hillary was trying to do the right thing in meeting her deadline, and she just kept writing. And this is an unfortunate situation, but we're just going to face facts, and we're going to move forward with it. I think we have gotten to, they are surly about it, but I think we have closed the loop on this in January, February. Now it is May, and this new second editor emails right off the bat and says, I will not read this unless you combine it into the original manuscript. This is a Wednesday, and I fall to the floor of my office right here sobbing. I'm just like, oh, my God, this, this, this is the end. This might be the end. Like, was all of this really for nothing? Because what this means, I know as soon as I read it, is I'm losing at least five figures a week, every week that I am working for them at this point. We're talking two, three weeks full-time to combine two completely different manuscripts into one without causing chaos, without missing any of the work that I've already doing? Am I really willing to sink another 30, 40, $50,000 into this? How much will I go into debt to help people through a book? And for what? We had just been to see Into the Woods at City Center Encores here with Neil Patrick Harris, Heather Headley, Sarah Bareilles. It was amazing. So I had that in my mind. And I said to my agents, this is like when Cinderella's stepmother throws a whole bucket of seeds into the fireplace and tells her that she may go to the ball when she has plucked all of the seeds out. There is no point. It is simply a power play. It is simply her show that she is... The, the one above Cinderella. Even if it is valuable that you have your reasons why this is the way you've always done it and you want those track changes, it is completely unreasonable. When that was submitted in November and it is now May, it has gone from 100,000 words down to 65,000 words. It has been completely restructured. And I am lying on the floor of my office weeping and thinking, I never cared about being an author. I, truly, it was never on my life goals. It was never on my bucket list. When a friend of mine in publishing came to me in 2014 and said, your style course has to be a book. I am telling everyone at my imprint, everyone is obsessed with the style tips. Everyone keeps talking about them. This needs to be a book. And I said to her, that sounds like a lot of work for very little money. And I was right. And so I had no interest. I'm just not the kind of person that is motivated by external, like, badges. Like, oh, good, check. I get to say that I'm an author. That's just not the way my, where my motivation comes from. So what changed my mind is I genuinely thought it would help and reach the most people. I would be able to get my books into libraries and prisons and available to people with a lower income who can't afford the courses where we get community and accountability and structure and all of these mixed media. And I know that you are going to learn more. Your life is going to be changed more in a course and a community. But if you can't afford that, is there a way that I could distill some of this and give it to you as a book? But I'm throwing away everything I've spent a decade building for my family. I didn't get into this to be a martyr. Now, I get a break at this point because the publisher is disorganized. The second editor had emailed me that the first one quit. 
And I immediately forward that email to my agents. Within 12 minutes, they have replied in all caps, OMG, Colleen the president or someone high up, I can't remember their title, Colleen immediately more ASAP. The swiftness and the shock at this will become relevant later. But this works out in our favor because the president or whoever it is, is embarrassed because that's not how things are done. The agent should have been informed that the editor left. The agent should have, got, should have gotten to tell me it shouldn't be coming from the editor. So somehow in this, then, I am given a third editor. So we kind of skip over the manuscript issue, or I guess they agree not to have me do the manuscript. So now I am have this third editor, and in the weeks that come, <laughs> there is more of all of the same, the disrespect, etc. But finally, we get one amazing email. I have a week vacation scheduled with my family that is super important to me. And after that week in California, I'm staying in California for a full month. This is the first time in almost 20 years since I moved to New York City that I have gone home for a month. And I am trying to, to get more time with my family and see how, how it might be re- reasonable for Jeremy and I to spend more time with them while living in New York. I've already paid so much for our housing for the month of July. But the reason to go out there is to see my family. And I'm thinking, if this is the only window I have to do edits, or I've got to accept that I am pushing the pub date again, which you will recall was so important to us from the beginning for other family and life plans, and already at this point has been pushed a year. So I'm feeling very stressed about this. I I don't want to sacrifice more money and more time with my family in the short term, but I also don't want to sacrifice my long-term family goals. And is this going to come down to, even though it's not my fault that the editor delayed and then the editor quit and then the next editor caused drama and all of these delays, but is it still going to come down to I either have to sacrifice something now or to get the pub date not pushed or sacrifice the pub date in order to be like, guys, I'm just not available in July. This was always the plan. It was never supposed to be going on this long. But we get this amazing email that the third editor is going to have edits back at the perfect time. There are two weeks right before I leave. We clear my schedule. We change everything in the company. I am euphoric. All the team is like, it's happening. We're going to make it happen. This is so great. And then Tuesday, June 21, I didn't even have to look up that date. I will never forget it. The day they said I'd have edits, they arrive. I open the email and there is a, uh, a document attached and my name is misspelled. Every one of my three names, Hillary is spelled with two L's. There's no Rushford and Collier is spelled with an I. Now this could seem nitpicky and not like it's a red flag of wild disorganization and disrespect, except that my name is right there on my email address and the cover of the book they've just read and are saving uh, an email of the same document name. And it's the only brand an author has is their name. Like this, this is the core thing we're talking about is the brand that is this author. The manuscript they have read is the wrong manuscript. It is the one I submitted in November, eight months earlier. I wrote for another eight months and not a single person on my publishing team ever read a word. And number three, this editor reads only the introduction. And they write, quote, Hillary, I'm afraid there is no gentle way to say this. 
My experience of the manuscript is the same as editor one and editor two. End quote. Pausing to note that what they go on to write was never, ever, one time discussed in the year I worked with editor number one, and I was given no indication editor number two even read my work as they said they refused to unless I combined the manuscripts. I immediately confirmed with the freelance editor who corroborated that none of this was ever brought up to her in conversations with editor number one. Just gaslighting exhibit number 182 at this point. Tell the author that they have been told this for a year when they have never been told this. Continuing on to the email, quote, in its current form, the manuscript is not acceptable for publication. There is a significant amount of work to be done at the sentence and paragraph level if the project is to proceed to publication. The amount of line-level revision that needs to take place with the manuscript is well outside the scope of what we can accomplish here in-house. I admire and respect that editor number one tried to help guide the manuscript to a publishable state, end quote. Aside again, I confirmed with their handpicked editor, whose salary I paid upon reading this email, that there was never one time a concern raised about whether the manuscript might not be publishable. It was so poorly written. Never. I'll continue. Quote, what is needed here is the wisdom of a professional writer who can take the time to tighten, simplify, and clarify the expression throughout the book. It is truly a sentence-by-sentence -sentence revision. Quote, in case you are not grasping this, what she means is I would pay a ghostwriter to rewrite every sentence of my book to sound absolutely nothing like my book. I continue. Quote, again, I think it is essential that a professional writer be brought in to look at the overarching structure of the book and to address the writing at the sentence level. I can't stress strongly enough how important it will be to get significant help here. We have quite a ways to go before the project is publishable. End quote. Oh, my hands still get cold every time I read that. It's the audacious gaslighting and the disrespect for me. Number one, your job is to deduce in a 75-page book proposal if the author can write a 300-page book. The book proposal even comes with sample chapters of the book. The author then writes that book. So to let them write for a year and then come tell them they can't write means you were bad at your job to hire this writer. Furthermore, you were unethical at your job to tell an author when to expect their pay throughout the timeline and force them to hire a private editor and an illustrator which I'd like to remind you, they required I do illustrations before they even read the book. So to ask me to invest that, that, that income on my end, pay those salaries, invest that time, expect that income for a full year when you didn't even read the book proposal enough to know whether or not the author could write, that is literally what your job is based upon. 
Number two, my agents, the first editor, and the freelance editor all read this book. Four individuals told me this book was strong. Furthermore, I was repeatedly told what a strong writer I am. My book coach emphasized this and had no reason not to. I had already hired the book coach when I was working with them. Their reputation is on the line pitching me to agents. So if they don't think I can write, it hurts the book coach's reputation not to say so. When I had to hire the freelance editor, my agents repeatedly said in interviews, Hillary is a very strong writer. This is not at all a ghostwriting situation. She is a lovely writer. Their job is to take books they believe in to publishers. They have no reason to lie. It hurts their business to misrepresent authors they think can't really write. Then they read the whole book and said it was good. Now, I understand that writing is art and art is subjective. There are best-selling books out there that I do not care for at all. I totally do not get why they are popular. So I am genuinely not offended that the third editor didn't like my writing. What I am offended by is that they did not apologize that I spent a year because they fought so hard for me. That they didn't apologize that they made me pay for an editor and illustrations before even reading the book. Before even reading enough of my writing. A third chapter in order to realize that they thought I was the shittiest author and shittiest writer they had ever come across. And there is no book on all of Amazon right now. There is no book in Barnes & Noble that is more hideously written than this one by Hillary Rushford Collier. And you couldn't take the time to read a chapter in order to make that determination, which is literally what your area of expertise, what your job is supposed to be. And that I am being gaslit as though I was given this feedback all along when I have witnesses, my freelance editor and agent, that this was never what I was told. What I am offended by is that there is no conversation about the monetary value of a book to all parties included. Who has the most to financially gain and lose from a book? Me. Who loses all their money and isn't getting a vote here? Me. Who loses the remainder of their money and isn't getting a vote here? The agents. They only get paid when I get paid. Who is going to market and sell this book? Me. Any author will tell you that. I'm going to spend more money hire my own publicist to get me on television shows. I'm going to spend weeks of my life on every podcast known to man. I'm going to spend money on that publicist to get in magazines. I'm going to build the sales page, the opt-in gifts, the pre-order bonuses, create all of them. I'm going to hire a coach and rehearse my presentation. I'm going to invest in the photo booths and the DJ and everything we were going to do at this girls' night out book tour I'm planning. I'm fucking doing it all. But you get to decide that I can't market this when that is what I am. I am a business owner. I am a marketer with a decade-plus proven track record. Friend, many best-selling books are not the best books. They are not the most beautifully written, the most thought-provoking and life-changing. Some absolutely are. But many are just the best marketed. If you have hundreds of thousands of dollars 
and hundreds of thousands of email subscribers. It is not hard to hit a bestseller list. It is not because you wrote the most perfect book. But you're choosing to throw away everything I have invested and not let me recoup any of it because you think I'm going to sell, what, 20% less than you envisioned when you bought my book? You're not hot and bothered over the book in the way you want to be, so you're going to throw it into the incinerator. If I don't give you another year of my life and pay another person to do what you hired me to do, that's what our contract says. It says that I am a professional writer and that is what I'm being paid for. So to gaslight me that a professional writer needs to come in, what the fuck have I been doing for the last year of my life? Why would you call me a writer and give me this money and then all of a sudden act like I am the idiot for believing that I could write? When all year people have been telling me that I can write? Like, the gaslighting is so insane. I'm sorry that I am shouting in your ears on this podcast. I cannot hold it back. I held my cool and my ish together in week one and week two. And I cannot do it when we get to these parts of it. The audacity and the entitlement is something I cannot comprehend because I have always been an artist. Yes, I am a CEO of a creative entrepreneurship company. I do not have investors, shareholders, coffers of money to get me through hard seasons. I mean, Fox News just paid what, like $70 million or something in a lawsuit? That's a corporation. You have the audacity not to give a fuck about the human being on the other end of your very confident email for it to not even occur to you to apologize. And the way I know that's true, it's not just like, oh, well, they just didn't put it in that email or it just wasn't appropriate to say at that time. I'll share in a moment. But reading that email, I don't think I even cried. (laughs) My whole body just went cold. I felt nothing. A chorus line. Everything I had lost for Jeremy and myself flooded through my mind. I felt stunned and numb and shell-shocked because I knew in that moment it was dead and also that I had just read a proclamation over me that I was going to have to work to not let define me for the rest of my life. I, I had and have no interest in being ghostwritten. Having an entire book rewritten to not sound like me And every time one of you tells me you love the book, I would know what you mean is the hidden person who wrote it. What am I going to do for other books? Why would I write a book if I don't want to write a book? Now, the truth is a lot, a lot of people don't write their own books. But I am a writer and a teacher. This is what I do. I wasn't just writing a book to accomplish some 
arbitrary business goal and I didn't really want to do it and I was going to delegate it. I'm a teacher and this was a medium to express that same teaching in a different way. And every step of the way from my book coach on through, I kept being told not just that I was a good writer, that it was rare what a strong writer I was, that I had a gift, how easily this came to me, how well I did it, how quickly I could write at the high level that I could, that I had so many more books in me. What galls me is that the editor did not have the humility to say, A, this is my opinion. Art is subjective. There are other editors out there that are that are going to have different opinions. And let's just make sure, because I have no reason to crush your spirit, crush your soul, declare over you that the thing you've been pursuing for seven years, you were God-awful hideous at, and you should be embarrassed you even tried in the first place. No, I'm going to be an empathetic, rational, reasonable person, and I'm going to say the truth, which is, this is my opinion. Not, Not everybody likes, I don't know, Severance. I don't know who you are if you don't like severance, but I'm sure there's people out there that don't like severance. Art is open to interpretation, but meanwhile, I'm obsessed with severance. B, they didn't have the humility to say, no one has said this to you. I'm going to tell you, I'm going to be honest. No one has said this to you. This is shitty, but this is what happens when a book is orphaned. It's an editor who buys the book. And then when they, they left, and that isn't your fault. It is not your, a proclamation of your future as a writer. I personally just wouldn't have bought the book because it's not my personal style. It doesn't speak to me. It's not my jam. So unfortunately here is where we are, but that's because you and I aren't the right fit. Not that you are such a horrible writer. You for the rest of your life have to publicly pretend to be a writer while actually having a professional writer be the one you paid with the money we gave you. Like, oh, it makes no sense. C, did not have the humility to say, I will understand if you don't want to use a ghostwriter and instantly release you from your contract so you can find an editor that loves this style as much as my former colleague, the editor, who fought so hard for this book in the first place, we brought a whole team of 12 to the meeting because you were the, the, the you know, prime apple that we wanted to pluck. All those people who were so obsessed with you, Hillary, you're not delusional. They were all there. I'm the one person on this team who doesn't love this book. And, I, and I'm sorry about that because I was giving you this editor. But please go fly free and find the other people who love it as much as all my other colleagues did. Like, it's me, hi, I'm the problem, it's me. Um, I didn't beg them. They, they outbid the next imprint by quite a bit. They wanted this book. And then for a year, they did nothing but make me feel like I was high maintenance, a problem, a disappointment because I kept my deadlines and asked them to do the same while writing exactly the book they were so desperate to get. Because in my opinion, they are bad at their job. They didn't listen to my voice or my values in the proposal, on social media, on the podcast, ask any questions in the interview, and collectively read a first manuscript one time and one introduction chapter over 13 months. If you're curious what the first draft of an unpublishable book sounds like, you can find the introduction chapter they read in the description of this episode. 
I made a link where you can download it as I knew if I was you, I would be so curious. So it felt like the right thing to do. And as much as I was tempted to go in to edit it and maybe make it even better, I just left it as it was. It does include illustrations, which were in the June version that they didn't read. I don't know if they even saw all that work they required me to complete before they would read it, but at least you get to see a few of them. One editor I met with from another imprint described this book as a gift you give yourself, and that's exactly how I envisioned it. The fonts and formatting are not as cool as they would be in a real book, but it's the best I could do on a Google Doc as I submitted it to the publisher. And listen, if it's not your style, no worries. Again, it's art and art is subjective. The question is whether it's worse than any book you've picked up in a store, clearly not written by a professional writer, and is so different in tone than what you know of me anywhere I've produced content for the last 11 and a half years that it's a shocking disappointment. You aren't a professional editor, but I am assuming you are quite a prolific reader and they only have jobs because you buy books. So if this was a game, which it's not, it's my life, but if it was a pretend fun game, you would get a vote. At the time though, what was most traumatic, and honestly to this day still is, is that my agents said nothing. They had written back within minutes when the first editor was fired. I have never, in my whole year and a half of working with them, I've never met someone faster at replying to emails. For 15 months, they had built a personal, intimate relationship with me. I knew about their health, their children, their spouse. We'd spent hours a at a time on Zoom. They, I had cried to them. They had read the book and said they loved it. They had given edits, which included nothing about my writing style. And they didn't even write a sentence along the lines of, I'm heartbroken for you. Or, you know we loved your book and therefore disagree with this feedback. Once a day, two days, a week had passed with their wildly uncharacteristic silence. We never spoke again, but through the lawyer that I immediately hired. The wheels had come off the wagon with them a few weeks earlier though. That Wednesday, when editor number two sent me the email saying that I had to combine the manuscripts and I crumpled to my office floor, Thursday, I couldn't get out of bed. And that's a phrase that I kind of forget what it actually means until it happens to you or you have a specific memory to go back to it. It's that you don't know what to do with yourself, your day. You don't know how to function to do anything throughout the day. The depression is so heavy that you just try to sleep and not think. You just try to be catatonic because it's the only, any emotion, any thought is just too jarring and painful. I just took a Xanax and tried not to feel alive that day. And that Thursday night, I believe it was around 5 p.m., they told me they had news. And I shuffled to my desk, and they told me the president or whomever had changed my editor a third time, and they felt really optimistic about this. And I was too exhausted to be optimistic about anything. My reaction times were highly delayed. I was 13 months into this nightmare scenario, and I'd just been blinded yesterday that this might all actually fall apart. I was very wary to trust that all of a sudden it was going to be fine. 
and I was verbal processing, I suppose, still haunted by this two manuscripts issue that I thought we'd put to get a bed months ago that just came back and threatened death again 24 hours ago. When one of the agents screamed at me, get over it. I don't want to hear it anymore. And I excused myself. I went to the bathroom. I sobbed and I dried my eyes and I returned to the Zoom meeting and I said, I just have two more questions and I got the facts I needed and I ended the meeting. And what I hadn't said, and I think my reason is that the publisher was so bad all along, subconsciously I'd had to at least believe my agents were good, were good enough that I had some adult to be able to trust to get me through this. So what I hadn't said ever was there are only two manuscripts because seven months ago you told me to lie. I have the email and you have never taken accountability for that. It almost cost me everything yesterday. And today you had the gall to yell at me when it's your fault and I have never even brought it up because I was so sure you knew it was your fault, but didn't want to make you feel bad about it. But now you're acting like I am the one that is overreacting to the fact that the book may have just died yesterday, and it all goes back to seven months ago when I got an email telling me to do something that in, in ethically and in integrity in my gut did not feel like the right thing to do in a business context, but I trusted you. And now I, I, I give a lot of grace for emotion, for screaming, for anything like that. That's not what I'm upset about. I'm upset about the gaslighting that you don't want to hear about it. I was on the floor sobbing because you gave me bad advice seven months ago. I should be screaming at you and you are screaming at me for sobbing about the bad advice. So now I had a lawyer. <laughs> Anyone who's a lawyer will appreciate <laughs> that it has to be really bad <laughs> when your lawyer is the one bringing you to tears. <laughs> oh, but bless that lawyer. After like 15 months at this point, they actually made me feel safe. They spoke to me like an adult. They spoke logically, rationally. The things they said made sense. They felt right. They felt wise. They felt ethical. They weighed the pros and cons of decisions based on what it would cost me. They didn't just care about racking up their bills or their revenue. They would say, we can do that, but it's going to be costly and I don't really want that for you. And the fact that that sentence feels like the most humane thing anyone had said to me in during 18 months at that point, that basic consideration for the well-being of the other party you're in a business arrangement with, just really says it all. It's like the smallest thing, and yet it felt, sadly, so big. 
But the trauma from the publisher continued for another six months. In negotiations, there was a small amount of money that covered about what I had paid for the editor, illustrator, and legal fees. And the lawyer said legally it was mine, and so I agreed they should ask for it. And the publisher wrote back, and this is another email that I didn't go back to look up the exact sentence because the the feeling of it is seared into my brain, but I believe the exact words were, I am deeply disturbed at Hillary's insistence on keeping the money. It wasn't my insistence. It was what my lawyer said was right based on the contract. But to be deeply disturbed that I was keeping a tiny fraction of what I lost all because you and your colleagues were bad at your job and you are still trying to shame me as I try to rebuild from your chaos. It's like in The Grinch Who Stole Christmas when he leans back down to grab that one last crumb from the mouse. Like you took the tree, the feast, all the decorations and now you care about making sure you get that last crumb from my family, that last little morsel for us to put in our mouth. That's what I mean when I say they didn't just not apologize in that email. They truly, fundamentally, absolutely did not understand any of this from my perspective. It was all about them, all about what they lost, what they wanted. None of it ever had to do with them for a moment putting themselves in my shoes, being empathetic, wondering what it was like from my experience, wanting, as I want in every one of my business interactions, how can I make this as much of a win for everyone involved? How can I honor that you too are running a business, that you too have a family, that you too have priorities, that you too need mental and emotional health and rest? I just, I still can't believe the lack of that, and I know I've heard from so many of you heartbreakingly that, that get it. This has been your experience in work. It has rarely been my experience in work, and I did not know how common it was. And because I've had all these other experiences in work, I know it doesn't have to be that way. It's elective. It's optional. And a common theme in your comments has been kind of asking, as I've shared the first two parts, why I'm so scared to share. And it's not been because of this community. I think there's been a sense of like, of course we would support you. Of course we would believe you. Of course we're here for you. That wasn't my concern. It's because I had already been legally threatened when I said nothing. Last summer, they said to my, no, last fall, they said to my lawyer on the phone, we've already taken a reputational hit over this. We've heard from multiple authors that Hillary Rushford has been saying on Instagram she had a bad experience in the publishing industry. I paid for this conversation, mind you, because I'm paying top dollar for every minute they keep my lawyer on the phone. And they said, I haven't gone to social media. So they made me pay while they passed on this unsubstantiated rumor, which was entirely false. I linked in the description, was it in part one or part two? I can't recall. I linked the the two posts I had made at that time, starting in August 2022. 
And all I did was show an emotion. I showed sadness. I said I'd had a hard summer. I showed grief. I said that me six years ago would be so disappointed to see where I'm at today. And they had the audacity. I know I'm using that word a lot and also gall a lot, but like, ugh, nothing's hitting for me the same. Nerve, but ugh, just audacity. To say that I was so beholden to them, I could not show an emotion without it being about them. Me, weeping, rebuilding my life, while they scoffed and say, how dare you do this to us? How dare you cry on the internet without saying what it's about and tarnish our reputation? How dare you do this to us? One of my closest friends, one of three people I talked to the day my book went to auction as I was deciding what to do, who is in the publishing industry, who knew I had been miserable in my book experience, thought I'd had a miscarriage. It didn't even occur to them that level of grief could indicate that something had gone wrong with the book. That's how silent I was. So yes, I'm sharing this story anonymously on the podcast, as I did then, very intentionally omitting anything that could identify them from one of the myriad of imprints and agencies out there. But then I didn't even say it was about a book. And they managed to make my grief less important than their reputation and implied I was in breach of contract for crying in public. So yeah, that's why it feels terrifying to even say the word book on this podcast. Which, if you're upset people know that Hillary Rushford had a bad experience in the publishing industry, then how about you just not go around giving people a bad experience in the publishing industry, and then you won't have to worry so much about your reputation. You are terrified when you see random women on Instagram crying in public. Now, again, I give grace for reputations. No one is loved by everyone. Everyone experiences things through their lens. I also give so much grace for growth. If people talk about things that were years ago, you may have grown since then. So do you have 10 other authors you could send these potential authors you're hearing from to that would gush about their experience with you in 2021, 22, 23? Say they've written other books and this was a far healthier experience working with you. The first of their authors I called when this happened to me replied, oh my gosh, it was the exact same thing with me. I thought I was the only one. So that Tuesday, June 21, when editor number three sent their email telling me that I have no career as a writer ever in my future, I remember going out onto our balcony where Jeremy was taking a break in the sunshine, summer, summer sunshine, and with no emotion, recapping the email for him. They said, this is so horribly written, you have to hire a ghostwriter to rewrite every single sentence, and this is very far from publishable and needs a significant amount of work to have a hope. 
and he started yelling and crying. He was just like, what the fuck do they want from you? Like, are you fucking kidding me? Is this a nightmare? Like, how is this really happening to us? Why is this happening to you? What is wrong with these people? He was so angry. He had heard me be so angry for a year. And now I just had no more anger in me. I was just empty. And now it exploded from him. And I was so grateful that I hadn't gone through this experience single and living alone. And I hate that I am saying that because I was single for so long and I still very much identify with anyone who is, but I am telling you that truth for you. I had a witness. I had one person who had read my emails and theirs, who had heard my pep talks to myself before Zoom calls and my frustration afterwards at them, who had watched me walk into my office every day and stay there for hours and emerge buzzing, telling him how good this book was, how I really felt like this was going to set women free in a way I hadn't seen. He knew I had done the best any first-time author could do, and I was bringing that on the back of more than a decade of experience in this industry, already being in my second career. I was bringing to it therapy and wisdom and maturity and being self-evolved and having self-awareness. And with all of that, how could I be made to feel that I did it so horribly and I never should even have begun it and had the audacity myself to think that I possibly was talented enough to actually be a published author after seven years in this process. I had a witness and having just one really makes a difference in being able in one day to move from someone who is an author on Monday to now someone who is healing from trying to be an author on Tuesday. As an aside, if you've heard this series and are an author or in the publishing industry and want to share any of your thoughts or experiences, if you would be so kind to, I know personally DMs can be hard to type that much with just two thumbs. So I created an email address, books at deanstreetsociety.com. It is linked in the description of this episode and anything shared with me there will of course be kept anonymous. But a lot of people have asked in the last week since part two, where will you go from here? And I don't know. I think it may depend on what I hear from you. If I hear from people that did have beautiful, supportive experiences, and if you feel you did anything to make that possible that we might be able to learn from, or maybe you have a agent or editor who is lovely and the answer is getting recommendations to a specific beloved professional. That may not be information to share with the masses. That may be something you're sharing with me privately, but it still could be something that we could learn from to consider. After you've been cheated on, you know, you want to date someone who's in your friend circle where people can vouch for their character. So is that a possible path forward? It may depend if I hear from people who made this a profitable profitable revenue stream without having hundreds of thousands of dollars to pour into it up front because I just 
don't want to go down that path again. I don't see the purpose in it or the truth, as I've already heard from some since going live with this, that's exactly what they had and why it made sense from them for them. And at least knowing that helps you to not go down that path and think you are going to follow in someone else's footsteps when you're not realizing the resources that they have behind the scenes. If I have genuine advice that I feel comes from a variety of sources, not just my experience, I will share that for authors and aspiring authors down the road. I said at the top of the series, I love books, which means I love authors. And I don't want to leave people discouraged in hearing my story, but I also don't want to guide anyone down a path of heartache just because I want to be the girl who's here to champion your dreams. And for now, I don't know what the path forward is that is both emotionally and financially safe for me. I hope I'm wrong, not even for myself, but for so many of you. But I want to be slow to speak because it's a big decision to write and market a book. And until I hear from some more who've done it, and again, you can write me at privately at books at deanstreetsociety.com and it will be kept anonymous, I'm sorry to say I don't have advice. And a lot of you have asked if I would self-publish. And I am very reticent to answer this because... Please hear me. I do not want to make a commentary on what anyone else has chosen for themselves and is right for them, is right for you. But since this is the most common question I've received, including from my private friends over the last year, I will answer that for me, that's like asking someone who just lost a contract with one of the top music labels if they can't just start an Indiegogo fundraiser and produce it themselves. Technically, yes, but that's not the same level of gravitas. So it's not a lateral move. It doesn't make up for the dream they were pursuing that was dashed. Or it's like asking someone who was training for the Olympics, why don't they just run the local marathon in Canton, Ohio. Now, the local marathon in Canton, Ohio, which is a made-up marathon, I don't know if it exists, is such an accomplishment. I couldn't do it. It takes so much work and training, and anyone who does it should be so proud. It's just not an accomplishment if you were trying to compete for a medal in the Olympics. It is not going to be as satisfying to you as someone who set out saying, you know what? time, money, energy, work, resources, coaches, training, I'm going to put into this, I'm going to put into this running my local marathon is a very different thing than someone who has spent the last seven years of their life pursuing the Olympics. So while, my friend, there isn't a book, my dream for years wasn't to be an author. I always wanted to be a teacher. I just wanted to reach as many women as possible, and I saw that the medium of a book might be one avenue to do that. But if the book gatekeepers don't believe there are enough of us, they said we are a much smaller audience who want the truth in this area. If the powerful don't believe we are powerful enough to move the needle, then we'll have to start and believe that together, we are enough. 
It was always my vision that after a book came an immersive experience, the action steps and accountability to truly implement and let this teaching change your life, your beliefs, your behaviors in a community with me and one another. But we don't need this teaching bound in a factory first. We can receive it in audios, videos, live calls, journal pages, dialogue. So if you want this teaching, including the social justice elements that mean all women are welcome, and the conversational chatty girlfriend tone that editor number three didn't think was serious enough, and the geeky data to back it up that editor number one thought was too serious, we don't need permission. And we don't need to wait years. I wish I could reach more women, but friend, we will start with us. What makes women feel beautiful, the experience, is coming not in 2025 or 2024, but in June. This June. We are done waiting for permission or approval. We are ready to start feeling better, more peaceful, and more confident outside and in. They said, there's not many of us anyway. So we will be gathered in an intimate place called The Garden Party. That is the new name for our Elegant Excellence community. The Elegant Excellence community is our one private space. Instead of having a different group for every product or program I have, which is traditional, my heart is to create deep, ongoing community for like-minded, growth-minded, passionate people in a space where you get to be a member for years. And any of my teachings that speak to you, you can add on, you can explore anything we talk about here in the podcast while all pouring it into one community. It is already leading to folks meeting up for brunch in their city and turning to us for advice and sharing because they feel we would understand more than the people in their real life. And it's where I can speak more freely than I do in public, where it isn't just a one-way dialogue with me in DMs, but a group conversation getting to hear from one another. Because I may not have gone through an eating disorder or divorce or have a teen daughter, but collectively we have and do. And now we are calling that place The Garden Party, a name that will make more sense once you get inside the teaching of what makes women feel beautiful without buying more, weighing less, or waiting for the patriarchy to fall. Coming next month. If you want a definition of beauty that invites and includes everyone, is healthy for you, our girls, our mothers, our neighbors. And I know it sounds a little grand, but when you understand how much time and money we spend on feeling beautiful, which we'll talk about on an episode here in the coming weeks, but the more you learn about this on so many levels, you understand how much this unlocks for women or anyone who is impacted by the ranking and judging we do of bodies and beauty and the joy we let patriarchy, white supremacy, millionaires and marketing steal from our daily lives. It sounds a little grand, but I think you'll see why I believe this teaching can change the world. We can change our culture, or at the very least, be part of a counterculture where we model what it looks and feels like to embrace and redefine beauty our way. It takes what is exhausting you right now, leaving you feeling never enough, 
enough weight loss, enough clothes, smooth enough skin, toned enough arms, a flat enough stomach, confident enough around those people or at that event or to pursue that goal. In our current definition, we are never satisfied and satiated. In our new culture, we get to rest, play, delight, and enjoy our lives and ourselves. Friend, you spend time, money, and energy on this part of your life every single day. And no one has ever taught us how to do it well, let alone holistically. Body and beauty, inside and out, heart and mind works when you're 25 and 45 and 65 because it's not tied to youth, still works if you gain or lose weight, paints the picture for how we might really do it in a healthy way that honors all women, fucks the patriarchal definition of beauty, and reclaims what feminism is, embracing your beauty for you, because it brings you joy, because of how it feels, not how you look, and lets us live with more peace and joy in ourselves. You can be the first to hear when the doors open for this experience via the link in the description below where you download the introduction chapter to what makes women feel beautiful. That's hillaryrushford.com slash chapter and catch the vision for how we're getting free this summer. By hot girl summer around here, we mean fired up and ready to be free and surrounded by lots and lots of flowers. We are stepping off the invisible staircase and into the garden. Y'all, I am genuinely so excited about what's coming next. Yes, I will still be sad sometimes when I walk into a bookstore, as I often do, that that's not a part of my story. But I really was there for you. And I'm okay putting a bow on this chapter because I've created a new vision of how I can help you even more, even better, even more personally. And we only have to wait until June. So bring your sister, bring your mom, bring your daughter, bring your best friend. It's the party of the summer. And you, my dear, have got a VIP invite. Oh, wait. One more thing. Don't miss this. Before you go, love. P.S. Something I'm loving lately is the show The Diplomat on Netflix. Are we all watching? It is from the creators of West Wing. You know, to me, if you know me, that there's been a greater television show in the history of television shows than The West Wing. And I will not say that this is on the level of The West Wing. There is an element of delightful soapiness. It was described to me by a friend as West Wing meets scandal. I would almost say it's. West Wing meets Jane Austen. There is a a romance, there is a strong female lead element, but it is not giving me the, the crazy soapy drama of a scandal back in the day. There are so many things I love about this show. Let me count the ways. The writing is impeccable. The writing is so magically good. It is so complex. It is so detailed. The the stories, everything that's happening on an international relations level, and yet it doesn't lose you. 
it fills you in, and yet it doesn't give those obvious things where, you know when one character is having to give exposition to another character and you're like, well, this is a conversation no one would ever have, but we have to fill the audience in. It doesn't do that. They're so good at writing that they're able to give you the exposition in a way that the conversations actually feel authentic. It has a female lead who cares about sex and is sexual behind closed doors in her relationships without her body and her beauty being sexualized. She is not seen as a sexual being to others, and that is not required for her to actually feel like a sexual being in and of herself. The dynamic in the the, the marriage relationship of the way to show a husband that truly supports his wife and yet is not emasculated, stays complex, the little tiny things that they pull out that you learn to do in a marriage that you don't even realize that your spouse is doing for you. I mean, I could do a whole podcast episode debriefing on what is magical about The Diplomat, and yet I don't want to give away any of it um, uh, plot-wise, etc., I only have one episode left. I'm already crushed. We have this writer's strike going on. It is not lost on me that while they are completely different industries, (laughs) there are all of these writers out there saying, we cannot survive on what you're paying us. Do you value this work or not? If you value it, we need to get paid because people at the top are making more money and it literally doesn't exist without us and our ideas. Um, So that is not lost on me. Therefore, I deeply support the writer's strike, But I also support the writer's strike because we need high quality content. I know that there is so much content out there today, y'all. There is so much available on streaming. There is not a lot that is brilliantly done, that is so well written. And of course, the fact that it's created by someone from West Wing, another one of the main writers um, was also writing on West Wing, you know, Emmy nominated for that. So of course it's going to be so deeply aligned, but I just think there's something to, I was explaining to Jeremy basically about Colin Firth in the BBC miniseries of Pride and Prejudice. If you are a woman of a certain age and you are the kind of person that listens to this podcast, you absolutely know what I'm talking about and you are my people. I'm explaining to him the intellectual woman's heartthrob. And that it is about someone who is an equal sparring partner to you. It's not someone who is first and foremost attracted to you because you're hot or even you're funny or you're whatever. Their mind is attracted to your mind and vice versa. That's why we were all so obsessed with Colin Firth in that BBC miniseries, which yes, I had on DVD back when DVDs were a thing. Um, That is what's happening in this show. They are giving Carrie Russell people who are obsessed with, who are romantically interested in her because of her intellect and vice versa. It is such a specific, like I am just the core demographic for this show on so many levels. Here is a badass woman who is incredibly talented at what she does and yet is ethically a good person and really strives to be good and kind and is trying to make the right call and do the right things. She is sexual and feminine, but she doesn't have to show it off visually. Now, she could also dress a different way if she wanted to, but this character happens to not be a dress and heels person. Great, that has nothing to do with the fact that she is also sexual and feminine behind the scenes when she's in romantic scenarios. We don't have to lead with that. Those aren't our only two options. Be a girl who's like, tits are always out, 
or be someone who is like has an unfulfilling sex life. Like there is a, a complexity in between there. There's just so many levels that they are hitting. I think Carrie Russell as this character is the female archetype we want in all shows. There is, there's more of a drive. Madam Secretary is another show I loved, but Madam Secretary got a little flat sometimes. Like it was always, it was always a good, like sit in the bath with a glass of wine, watch Madam Secretary, but there's a drive to this. There's an energy to this that is a little closer to that West Wing energy. Oh, okay. DM me when you've seen it. Tell me what you think. Uh, What I was saying about the writer's strike is I'm already sad that we, I, I think season two is going to be really delayed because some people in the industry are saying that this writer strike could last for a year. So if you have other strong content to recommend to me, please send me a DM. If I get good recommendations, I will share them. But if you love Diplomat and something else a lot and West Wing and something else along those lines, please tell me if you love Severance or Counterpart, those are the like mind bendy, mind twisty things. And you have something else along those lines, um, TV or film please tell me, um, or the docu-series that we talked about, I think, in last week's PS um, on, on creatives, on artists, um, that, that shows you that everyone has been through hard things. As a creator and a creative, I consume beautiful content all the time, and the world needs that content. It is what gets us excited. It's what gets us connected. It's what lets us escape. It's what inspires us. I just want all artists to be more respected and compensated appropriately for the beautiful work that they do in the world. And I so hope that is true for all of the writing staff on The Diplomat because they absolutely deserve it. If no one has recommended this to to you or this gushingly, you are welcome in advance. Uh, And right before you go, If this series has blessed you, it would mean so much to me if you would leave a review below. If you are listening to this long episode here, you are one of the few who really gets this. And I cannot tell you how much it would mean for me to just take a moment, tap the stars, leave a review, and help other people find this show, especially as I am working to rebuild in this season because I had to step away from the podcast for so long to pursue this book. It means so much. Every time you share it, you tell it to a friend, you leave a review. So thank you in advance. And I will see you back here next You're Welcome Wednesday with grace and gumption. Till next Wednesday. 